Hey everyone, it's just me today. I'm going to talk about the fighting in our current psychotherapy culture regarding cognitive behavioral therapy and psychodynamic therapy. There's a there's a lot of infighting between the two groups and I want to talk about that and I'm going to potentially rant a little bit in this podcast. So I'm going to talk about the, I'm going to talk about the way in which our profession fights about theory essentially. This is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a therapist and a professor. Just a quick note here. If you haven't become a patron of the podcast, do so now. Go to patreon.com. Become a patron and you'll get access to hundreds of our premium episodes, which are really some of our best episodes. Okay, so this, e- this, is, uh, this episode is, was um, initiated by an email exchange I had with patron Simon. Patron Simon writes, the instructor of my class, so Simon is a psychotherapy master student. The instructor of my class has been saying that CBT, or cognitive behavioral therapy, is now considered the best form of treatment. The instructor disregards psychodynamic approaches as archaic. The instructor had a, had a, lecture, had a slide, had a PowerPoint slide at a lecture that said, Insight therapy has become increasingly controversial. It's expensive, it's time-consuming, and there, there's scant evidence of its effectiveness, unquote. So that, that's what it said on the PowerPoint. Our instructor ridiculed patients who sought long-term psychodynamic therapy and went on to explain that all universities only teach CBT to their master's students. Does efficacy of treatment depend on the type of client, or are some therapies generally considered better or worse? I emailed my instructor this question, but she avoided answering the question. Okay, so that's patron Simon's email, and I have to say, my blood is already boiling, because this drives me effing nuts. Not you, patron Simon, but your instructor. I don't mind instructors preferring CBT over any other theory, but I do have a problem with instructors presenting psychodynamic therapy falsely as if it is not evidence-based treatment because it is. So when people say that CBT is evidence-based and psychodynamic therapy is not, then these instructors are, are either stupid or they're biased. Either way, they shouldn't be teaching on theory, since they clearly do not know what they are talking about. In a nutshell, there are some presenting problems. So, you know, to talk about, to to fully explain this whole entire issue, it would take me probably 20 hours, because I have to explain cognitive therapy, I'd have to explain behavioral therapy, I'd have to explain all the different kinds of psychodynamic therapy. I'd have to explain how we measure effectiveness of different therapies. I'd have to talk about the research about different factors in, that are involved in outcomes in therapy. I'd have to talk about the different things that people come to therapy for. I would have to talk about the culture that we exist in reg- and the infighting that's been happening ever since. Uh, regard, you know, cognitive therapists used to hate behavioral therapists who would hate psychiatrists who hated, you know, psychodynamic people who hated humanistic people who hated family therapists who hated brief. I mean, it, it would take me too long to describe this whole thing. But in a nutshell, there are some presenting problems that lend themselves to cognitive behavioral therapy. And there, there are other presenting problems that lend themselves to psychodynamic therapy. And by psychodynamic therapy, I'm not talking about Freudian 
therapy that neo-Freudians did in the 1940s. What I'm talking about is contemporary psychodynamic therapy, which is attachment-based, it's corrective experience-based, it's other words for it are relational or interpersonal or intersubjective. Uh, there's a lot of other words for it. Uh, briefs, brief dynamic therapy is, is another term. And so uh, there's, uh, we're, when I say psychodynamic, any contemporary, or well, shall I say most contemporary psychodynamic therapists are uh, indistinguishable from interpersonal therapists or relational uh, psychoanalytic people. Anyway, so in a nutshell, there are some presenting problems that lend themselves to CBT, and there are, and there are some presenting problems that lend themselves to psychodynamic therapy. And there are some presenting problems that lend themselves to brief therapies like solution-focused therapy. And there are, some, there are some presenting problems that lend themselves to chemical dependency treatment. There are some presenting problems that lend themselves to humanistic therapies. So it depends on the presenting problem. That's why these forms of therapies still exist. If they didn't work, then they would disappear. So the fact that, there's, that they still are around and people still adhere to them means that at least for some clients, it's helpful. So, so even if you believe that only a small set of people would benefit from psychodynamic therapy, the statement that, that just going back here to what you what you quote, your instructor is saying is, um, is that there's scant evidence of its effectiveness, which I'll get into in a second. But anyway, John Norcross is an author and psychologist, highly respected guy. Uh, I actually met him, and he recommends focusing on the relationship. So don't focus on the theory. Don't worry about CBT or psychodynamic therapy. Focus on the relationship because most of the outcomes stem from how strong the relationship is, not what particular theory you use. And then he recommends after you establish, make sure you establish a strong relationship. Then, then you want to f- pick the particular theory that best uh, fits the situation for the client. Which means that sometimes Norcross says, "Yeah, use cognitive therapy. Yeah, sometimes use behavioral therapy, and sometimes use a different theory." You know, it it it's it's not that you always treat every client with CBT. Now, one of the uh, anyway, so <laughs> there's so many things I want to rant about. Okay, so this person ha- on their slide it says insight therapy has become increasingly controversial. Okay, let's just break this down. First off, referring to psychodynamic therapy th- theory or interpersonal therapy as insight therapy is is stupid because. Psychodynamic therapy for some people involves a lot of insight. For some people, it involves no level of insight. It involves attachment. It involves under, you know working on your relationship patterns. It involves the transference, countertransference. It involves uh, establishing a strong attachment between therapist and client that benefits the client. And so, so why are you referring to it as insight therapy? Okay. Two, cognitive therapy is insight therapy. <laughs> when you are any any one who's doing cognitive therapy is talking with their clients about understanding your automatic thoughts. Well, what do you call that? That's insight into your thought processes. Insight. 
Okay, so to call, so you're calling it, it, to to say that CBT is not insight therapy. Basically, you don't even understand your own. You don't even understand your own theory. Okay, so now behavioral therapy can can sometimes have nothing to do with insight, but sometimes it does. For example, when I use behavioral therapy, uh, particularly around trauma treatment and exposure, I always educate my clients prior to even starting because I need them to know what they're getting into because sometimes they're not ready for it. And so once they say, once I explain the whole process to them, which can take a number of sessions, by the way, not like full sessions, but like, you know, parts of several sessions, um, they have to understand what's happening. And, and so some of that has to do with insight, understanding how trauma works, understanding how their trauma works, understanding their, their triggers, understanding. So this is all under the general umbrella of insight. Now, I know some people will say like, well, when they say insight therapy, they're talking about insight into your, uh, you know, your, the id and the ego and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And it's like, um, okay, yeah, but general insight is involved in psychodynamic therapy. Psychodynamic therapy there are chapters, I have psychodynamic therapy books that, that, that dedicate chapters to cognitive therapy. So for the people who say that psychodynamic therapy is obsolete, it's, I don't know what, they ref, what they're referring to when they're saying psychodynamic therapy because contemporary psychodi- psychodynamic therapists understand the benefit of cognitive therapy. They understand the benefit of behavioral therapy. And so anyway, not all of them, but anyway. So, and, and then the other thing here on the slide was insight therapy has become increasingly controversial, increasingly controversial with who, who, who is it controversial with? I would say it's controversial with people who don't know what they're talking about, but there's a thriving group, uh, like something like, I don't know, 10%, five, 10% of psychotherapists you know, when, when they, when they're asked, when you ask like a whole bunch of therapists about their particular therapeutic approach, you know, a pretty sizable chunk of people say they're psychodynamic and there's no one theory that really comes forth as like the one theory that everyone follows. Sure. You have a lot of CBT people, but it's something like 25%. And then you have humanistic people and you have family systems people and you have solution focused people and, and you, you, there's, there's people are all over the place. So you could say if psychodynamic therapy is controversial, then so is CBT. Everything's controversial. It, it, so it's not controversial to people who know what they're talking about because people who know what they're talking about, like John Norcross will say, well, there's benefit to all the theories. All the major theories are, you know, mindfulness is a, is a useful tool to know. And some you're going to use it with some of your clients, and you're you're going to you're going to not use it with some of your other clients. Uh, trauma, you know, exposure therapy is good to know. Doesn't matter what kind of ther- therapist you are, it's good to know. Cognitive therapy, there's definite uses to that. Schema therapy, uh, relational, interpersonal, psychodynamic therapies, good. It's good to know that. Humanistic, uh, Rogerian, Gestalt. Solution focused narrative. All these are good. They're very helpful depending on what the client presents with and what stage of change they're at. Okay. So I don't know what the controversy is. 
because it is there's no controversy about it. The only controversy is that you're saying it's a stupid controversy. The next thing that on this slide that your teacher said, patron Simon, is there's scant evidence of its effectiveness. And this is where my blood really starts to boil because that's just patently wrong. And for anyone to say that, they either haven't looked it up or they have looked it up and they're ignoring it and they're lying to you. So again, I'm going to lay out uh, meta-analyses right now and research that has looked into psychodynamic therapy and found that it is empirically effective. And so for someone to say that there's scant evidence of its effectiveness is completely misrepresenting reality. And so again, I don't have a problem with someone saying, you know what? I don't like psychodynamic therapy. I really dig cognitive behavioral therapy. That's my thing. That's fine. And they can also say, you know what? I've read the research on psychodynamic therapy. And although researchers say that there's some effectiveness, I'm just not quite sure. Now that, you know, I would also go along with, because at least you're recognizing the fact that there's a whole group of people who the consensus among a whole group of people is that there is evidence of psychodynamic therapy's effectiveness. So, but to say that there's scant evidence of its effectiveness is, is just false. Okay. So let's go into some of the stuff here. Now, again, I, I would have to talk for so long about evidence-based therapy and how they design these studies and how for some issue, just, 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 in a nutshell, uh, someone actually emailed me, I think, and wants me to do a whole episode on evidence-based therapy, which I'll do at some point. It, it'll take some time, though, because it, it has to do with, like, research statistics and stuff, and it's something I can't really do off the top of my head. But anyway, in a nutshell, when you try to test effectiveness of a particular theory or any, med, any, you know, any medical treatment or psychotherapeutic treatment, you have to reduce the variables, and for those of you who understand research, you understand what I'm saying. If you don't understand research, you might not understand what I'm saying. But let, let me just sort of bring it into the medical field to maybe help out. So let's say that someone comes in and they are, I don't know, they have diarrhea. Let's just keep it something simple. So they have diarrhea and they don't have any other symptoms. Okay. And over time, Physicians realize that unless you get the diarrhea out of, out of, under control, the the person is going to damage themselves or become so dehydrated that they might die or something. And so, getting the getting the diarrhea under control is is the goal. Okay. So you start experimenting with different treatments to stop diarrhea, and that's. I, I'm 100% positive that's what the medical profession did however many decades ago. They said, you know, well, let's try this and let's try that and let's let's try this. And, oh, this seems to be working kind of. Let's do some more trials. Uh, maybe it's placebo, so we'll give some people a placebo and compare it to that and blah, blah, blah. And then eventually, over a lot of research and a lot of trials, they landed on Pepto-Bismol, <laughs> whatever, whatever compound is in Pepto-Bismol and, and other like treatments. They, they, they discovered that that's the treatment that works to stop diarrhea. Okay. When it comes to psychotherapy, the same research model is followed. 
you you first have to identify what are we treating here you know what's the what's the diarrhea analog here well the easiest way is is to treat a particular dsm diagnosis right like major depressive major depression major depressive disorder or panic disorder okay the the most com- very common researched diagnoses in the DSM are major depression or generalized anxiety or or OCD. Anxiety and depression are are very common. Not only are they common among humans, so it makes sense that you would research that, but they're also they also very much lend themselves to to trials to figuring out what sort of treatment works for them. And so so you take so you get someone in. Uh, so, so you send out word. You like we're recruiting people for this, you know, uh, research study, and then you assess them and you see, okay, how sev- are they depressed and how severe are they? You know, their symptoms, and then you administer some sort of treatment, and then you do a post measurement to see did the depression get worse? Did it stay the same, or did it get better, and by how much? Okay. So that's how you do uh, trials for medications for depression, and that's how you do trials for, for uh, different kinds of therapies for depression. Now, the, there's, there's a couple problems with this in terms of evaluating what sort of theories therapists should be following. One is, is that the, the vast majority of patients who come into therapy are not wanting to work on one particular problem. I can tell you, I can think off the top of my head, two or three clients of mine who came to me and said, I want to work on X and that's it. You know, someone comes in and says, I want to quit smoking or I have depression, uh, you know, and that's it. The 99.999%, now that's, as a marriage and family therapist, we tend to get um, fairly higher functioning clients or or clients who aren't suffering from things like schizophrenia or major depression or something like that. So that's, you know, partially a part of my, uh, just part of my profession. If you're a psychiatrist, you're, you're much more likely to see these very distinct mental illnesses, but anyway, but it could be argued that those aren't distinct either. Anyway, the point is, is that people come into me with a variety of issues. They'll sit down on my couch and I'll say, what would you like to work on? And they'll say, well, I've been kind of down lately. And then I'll do an assessment. They're not really, they don't qualify for major depression, but they are kind of down. And we'll talk about it and they'll say, yeah, you know, I'm just not really happy with my life. Well, there's no DSM diagnosis about happiness with your life. They might also say, "Eh, I don't really like my job. Again, no DSM diagnosis for I don't like my job. They'll they'll also say, I have kind of low self-esteem and I've never really felt like people liked me very much. Now this, again, if it's if it doesn't meet criteria for major depression or some other mood disorder or some anxiety disorder, these are just kind of general issues that people are really suffering from, but don't rise to the level of a mental illness or a disorder, I should say. Or they come to me and they say, you know what, my dad died 10 years ago and I've never really talked about it before. Okay, None of these things have anything, none of these issues lend themselves to research because you can't, you can't codify what constitutes the sort of grief that requires treatment versus the kind of grief that doesn't. Whereas you can codify what major depression is because there's lots of different, there's a lot lot of research that goes into how to 
assess someone you numerically through you know different assessments what major depression is so so right there you have a problem in terms of like how we evaluate different kinds of therapy so cbt as it is really lends itself to uh these these very distinct diagnoses because it's like okay someone comes in with depression and you do cbt with them and it and it, it works because because cbt is is generally one of the more effective if not the most effective treatment for depression now what if someone comes in with with those with those broad range of subclinical issues for therapy well some people would say well they don't really need therapy they're just coming in for like support or coaching or something well i completely disagree just because something doesn't meet the criteria for a dsm doesn't doesn't make them an illegitimate client in psychotherapy psychotherapy has a long tradition of working with people that that don't necessarily meet criteria for the dsm so that's ridiculous okay so maybe to those other kinds of issues that don't lend themselves to to uh studies are more along the lines of what interpersonal therapies are are made for humanistic therapies are made for so so that's one problem with the way that we use evidence-based treatment another problem is that in order for a study to not be too too expensive you know because every research study costs money you have to pay the researchers you have to spend the time you know there's there's the only way we know things is because Either some graduate student decided to do their dissertation on something or someone decided to spend money to, know, to ha- get an answer to a question. And there is almost no money in the field of psychology to study this sort of stuff no, because no one really benefits from it. You know, there's a lot of research on Prozac. Why? Because Pfizer or whoever makes uh, Prozac can make billions and billions of dollars if they – uh, manage to demonstrate effectiveness of their particular compound that they're putting in a pill. For psychotherapy, there's no such um, there's no such money making scheme. There's no such there's no piles of money. If 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 psychodynamic therapy comes out with a bunch of studies demonstrating its effectiveness, nobody really benefits. One because uh, it doesn't. It's just not the same thing. Two because trying to tell the public about this no one would really understand it you know um anyway so so um for cbt lends itself to so when 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 money is allocated to research of effectiveness of therapy they need to keep their costs down and one of the way you keep your costs down is by limiting the time that you uh, spend doing the study, right? If the study takes six months, then it'll cost a certain amount. If the study is going to take 16 years, then that's going to exponentially increase the cost of the, of the study. Plus it makes it much harder to, 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 you know, fulfill because maybe some of the researchers die or they, you know, forget about it or whatever, you know, the participants move away it's just really hard to do long-term studies. So CBT lends itself to short-term therapy. It, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very simple, elegant, useful therapy that you can do in a very short amount of time. And so CBT lends itself to, 
the the limitations to research that the research designs that are used to evaluate effectiveness. Whereas long term interpersonal psychodynamic attachment based therapies, it take it's so expensive to to do. Okay. Um, having said all that, I am now going to give you uh, a brief overview of the empirical evidence that psychodynamic therapy is effective. For example, with depression, psychodynamic therapy has been found to be effective. So here's some quotes from from some meta-studies. Evidence supports the use of psychodynamic therapy in the treatment of depression when compared to placebo and other control treatments. There is evidence that the positive effects of psychodynamic therapy are maintained in both the short-term and the long-term. Also, psychodynamic therapy adds to the effectiveness of medication when treating depression. Now, and there's not strong evidence that CBT is an obvious choice over psychodynamic therapy for depression. Now, you know, some researchers, when they look at all the research, will argue with that a little bit, but there's legitimate researchers who are saying this sort of thing. You know, it to me, when it, when it comes to this sort of thing, it's, it depends on why someone is depressed, right? If someone is depressed because of their automatic thoughts or because of their behavioral patterns, then cognitive behavioral therapy is going to be the best approach. But what about people who are depressed because of relationships? Well, is CBT going to work with that? What about people who are being marginalized by society and they're depressed about that? Is CBT going to work with that? I don't know. Is it, is it even socially just to use CBT with people when, you know, it's, it's, you're talking to a black person, you're just like, well, you know, it all just depends on the way you're looking at it. <laughs> I mean, of course, CBT people wouldn't say that. But anyway, my point is, is that uh, what, what about family conflict? You know, there's a lot of different roads to depression. So, so even right there, it's like you, you have to know why someone is depressed. But anyway, there's, there's research, legitimate re- empirical research that demonstrates that psychodynamic therapy is effective for depression. Um, now, anxiety, there's not much evidence that psychodynamic therapy is the best approach for anxiety. So you should know that. Um, but it depends on the cause of the anxiety. But if it's if it's pure anxiety, like pure OCD or pure generalized or pure phobia, then yeah, psychodynamic therapy isn't isn't the best approach. CBT probably is the best approach. What about eating disorders? There is strong evidence that psychodynamic therapy can help with eating disorders. Okay, eating disorders are a very complicated thing, <laughs> so uh, I would imagine that psychodynamic therapy would provide at least some of the effectiveness. Now, of course, if you have someone with eating disorder, you don't just do psychodynamic therapy. You have to, you have to understand eating disorders and the whole gamut. Anyway, what about drug dependence? Well, uh, there's not a lot of research in that area. What about personality disorders? There is robust evidence for the use of psych- psychodynamic therapy. In fact, the American Psychological Association has stated that relational psychodynamic therapy is a well-established treatment for personality disorders. So not only are some random researchers saying that psychodynamic therapy is evidence-based treatment for personality disorders, but the American Frickin' Psychological Association has publicly stated that when it comes to personality disorders, relational psychodynamic therapy is the way to go. So for an instructor to say that there's no evidence for the effectiveness 
of psychodynamic therapy, I just have to say, you don't know what you're talking about and you shouldn't be teaching. Again, if you prefer CBT as an instructor and that's your thing or whatever, you prefer whatever you want to say and, and you just you know don't really have a preference for a particular theory, then great. You can talk about that. You can practice that way. Most people do. But if you're a teacher and you're going to spread lies because the thing is, is it's not just like, you know, some people say, oh, Kirk, you know, you just like psychodynamic therapy. I, I, yeah, sure. I like psychodynamic therapy, but I love all theory. I love narrative therapy. I love cognitive behavioral therapy. I'm a nerd for cognitive behavioral therapy. It's just that cognitive behavioral therapy is, is so, is so simple and elegant. There's just not a lot to say about it as a thing. So, but I use it all the time. Solution focused therapy, love it. Brief therapies, love it. Collaborative therapies, love it. Humanistic therapies, love it. Rogers, Gestalt, Satir, family therapy, uh, neuro stuff, mindfulness stuff, brain stuff, sleep hygiene. I love it all. So when an instructor presents lies like this and causes students to reject a particular slice of the pie available to them as a clinician. Effectively, what, what these instructors are doing are limiting the possibilities for the clinician. They're basically saying, when a client presents in which it calls for psychodynamic therapy, I, I'm telling you not to use psychodynamic therapy because I am telling you that you shouldn't be doing that even though the evidence and the American Psychological Association is, are saying otherwise. So, in a, like, to, as an example, what Patron Simon's uh, instructor is doing is, let's say Patron Simon has a classmate who walks away from these situations and says, oh, psychodynamic therapy is stupid. I'm never going to do that. And then that clinician sees someone, sees someone with a personality disorder and then proceeds to use CBT with them and not consider relational psychodynamic therapy approaches or attachment corrective experience you know, based approaches. That therapist is, you know, at, at the very least being ineffective with, or not as effective as they could be with the client and might even be harming the therapist, might even be harming the client by not providing the best treatment for it. So that's what upsets me about this so much. So I wrote a very shortened version of all that to patron Simon, and then he wrote back, but let's take a break first. All right, we're back from the break. Again, become a patron of the podcast. Go to patreon.com. Also, my book is out now. It's been published for a couple weeks now. It's called Multi-Role Clinical Supervision. Multi-role, multi-role clinical supervision. It's my model of clinical supervision that I am proposing, and I lay out and describe the evidence, the empirical evidence, for the 19 critical roles of clinical supervision. And I talk about my own personal life. I talk about my own personal experiences as a supervisee and a supervisor. I really did a deep dive for a year and a half two years and in, into this topic uh, as I was writing it and, and I'm really proud of it. So if you're, it's a short book, it's, it's quick read. It's only about, I don't know, 120 pages of, of pretty fast reading text. And so 
Um, go out, go to Amazon, get it. Okay, so let's get. So I wrote all that to Patron Simon, and he wrote back. Oh, it's such a relief to hear you say that. The sneaky trick the instructors often use is to talk about Freud's psychosexual phases or his theory of dreams when referring to psychodynamic theory. Surely psychodynamic theory has matured since since the early days of Freud. Is there something political that goes on with funding at universities for CBT? Are they told to advocate for particular treatments because of how funding works? Are instructors asked to fall in line with the directives from the head of the department? So that's so Patron Simon is like, so why would they be biased against psychodynamic therapy? Well, Patron Simon, these are very good questions, and I don't I don't know the answer, honestly. <laughs> um the 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 only thing I can tell you is that it doesn't surprise me because I've seen it before. I I've had a lot of you know I have a full master's and I have a full doctorate, meaning that basically I have two masters and a doctorate, and therefore I've taken a lot of classes with a lot of professors, and I can tell you that every professor has their biases. It's just it's pretty easy to and, and any student will attest to that. They'll be like, yeah well, this professor really likes this theory and well, this professor really likes that theory. And, and so you, you can tell. And so I, I you know, I, I think that's part of it. That bothers me, honestly, because again, if you are a clinician, then you can have your own preferences. But if you're a teacher, the best case scenario for me is when my students walk away from my class going, I really don't know what theory that guy hates. I know he has a particular uh, preference for psychodynamic theory, but I also know he really loves all the other ones. He clearly loves all of them. That's what I want people to know. One, it's true. But two, what it does is it gives the freedom to the student to decide where they want to go. And to, because, you know, students really follow an instructor's footsteps. One, because they look up to them. And two, because they just don't know what they're doing and they need some guidance. And when an instructor stands up and says false information about a particular theory, that could end that person's uh, uh, you know, interest in that particular theory for the rest of their life. I mean, I was basically like this until I learned more. Um, I had sort of a disjointed relationship with psychodynamic theory in that on one hand, I liked object relations and what I understood to be object relations, but I also completely hated Freud because most of my instructors during my first master's would talk shit about Freud all the time. You know, they talk about the psychosexual phases and they talk about, you know, his, you know, the fact that he, he might've had a sexual attraction to his own mom and all this stuff. And everyone would laugh and, oh, Freud, he's a, he's a ridiculous person. It wasn't until later in my life when I actually started looking into Freud myself that I slowly started realizing that Freud had a lot to say about a lot of different things. And yeah, some of it is stupid, but he was completely making stuff up from scratch. You know, he didn't have a robust field of researchers and other authors to call upon. He was, he, you know, he's kind of starting this off on his own, you know, on the, on the, shoulders of Charcot and other people like that. But the point is, is that when you actually, anyone who really knows Freud, when you hear them talk, they'll be like, oh, Freud's a genius. Now, I don't know if Freud's a genius, but uh, sometimes I'll refer to him as such. But anyway, 
anyone who really knows Freud, they will say, oh, yeah, Freud had a lot of really great things to say. And he really was on the nose about stuff that we still consider to be true today, that how would he know this stuff so far, so long ago? I mean, we're talking like 1880s. We're talking just a decade after the Civil War, okay? He he knew stuff and uh, was, you know, it's just fascinating that he knew that talking to people about their problems would help them. I mean, that was like revolutionary. So, um, so I also hated Freud because in the beginning, because I just didn't, I was taught a certain line. And so, so I think that part of it has to do with all that. You know, it's so much easier to have a very quick categorization of a particular group of people than to really get to know it, right? It's like, oh, yeah, people in the South, they're all idiots. Or, oh, yeah, New Yorkers, they're all obnoxious and, and uh, you know, loud and brash. Oh, you know, Seattleites, they're all passive aggressive. Oh, you, California people, they're flaky. You know, there's this, there's this, uh, who did I leave out? <laughs> um, oh, Texas people, they just want to shoot people with their guns. Uh, who else can I insult? Um, uh, people from Minnesota, they have funny accents and are basically Canadian. You know, there, there's all these different uh, categorizations that we have of people. And once you actually, it's so, it's so much easier to do that than to actually go, you know, each group of people has a wide variety of, of the sort of people and the common bias about those people is, is, is almost never true. Well, it's the same when it comes to theory, you know, it's so much easier to just, just discount psychodynamic theory and say, ah, it's all a bunch of Freud bullshit. It's irrelevant. And therefore you don't have to learn about it now. You know, you've just, you just, you just scratched off a huge to-do list item you know, learn psychodynamic theory. Uh, you can just scratch it off if you just go like, nope, stupid. I was told it was stupid. I've decided it's stupid. I don't need to learn it. And so I think that's part of it too because the fact is is that my my call for everyone is you need to know all the theories. And that, that seems to be where we're going. The way I think about it is that like when you're a physician, you don't, Physicians don't follow a particular theory. There's no such thing as different theoretical approaches to medicine. You have different disciplines, like I work on feet and I work on hearts and I work on brains. But no, across all those fields, everyone understands how the cell works. Everyone understands how the body works. Everyone understands how, you know, cancer is formed. And, you know, like there's, there's probably some differences in there, but but you don't you don't go to a physician and go you know what's your theoretical approach and then he's like oh you know I I follow a you know a, I don't know what sort of medical professional we could point to but you know I follow you know like the guy on the house that TV show I follow like his theoretical model like no one does that right because it's a little bit of a it's a it's a strange thing to do honestly because what physicians do to my knowledge is they use they just figure out the best treatment for a particular problem. Well, that's what we're supposed to be doing too as as psychotherapists. We're supposed to be looking at a problem and figuring out the best approach to that problem. And what that means is that really we need to learn 
all the major theories, we need to learn cognitive therapy, we need to learn behavioral therapy, we need to learn psychodynamic, relational therapy, interpersonal therapies, we need to learn humanistic, Rogerian, Gestalt, existential, we need to learn family therapies, we need to learn uh, neurotherapies and mindfulness and, and all that kind of stuff, we need to learn how culture affects people, and what am I leaving out here? Um, I'm leaving out something, but, but you need to learn all the, the major umbrellas of therapy. And then when a client comes to you, you need to figure out what combination of those different approaches, oh, brief collaborative, I left out. We need to learn what combination of, of the various different approaches available to us is the best one for that particular client. That's where we're headed. At least that's my hope, because that's what I do. Now, the, the problem with that so, so that's, what, that's what medicine does for a good reason. They don't say, I'm only going to use, I'm only going to put casts on people's arms. No, ma- you know, no matter what happens, if someone walks in the door, they're going to get a cast. <laughs> you know, someone comes in with a cold, I'm going to put their head in a cast. You know, that's the equivalent of saying, I use CBT with all my clients. That's, the, that's exactly the same thing. So, so when, I mean, it's not exactly, but it's similar. So the problem with this reality and with this, what I consider to be the best practice, is that it requires psychotherapists to basically be in school for like 10 years. Because to understand all these different theories, it takes so long. It takes so long. There, there is, it took me forever. And, and I love, I'm a nerd for this sort of stuff. And it, t- it took me so long. It, it took me two masters, a doctorate. And even then I only had like a 3% understanding. And then I had to go on journeys on my own time. You know, this podcast has actually helped because, you know, listeners will ask me questions, you know, look into uh, this theory and look into that theory. And then I go, okay, well, and then I have to sit down and really learn it. Well, so who, who has time for that? Nobody has time for that except for me, apparently, and John Norcross. So, and John Norcross is a author of theory. He's a he writes very long books about every single theory. So he, you know, he's been essentially paid to know all the theories. So that's the problem. And I don't know what the answer is to that, honestly. That that's a tough one. But I know that the answer is not that we should be promoting the idea that psychotherapists should adopt one theory and hammer that nail, you know, that hammer that square peg into every single hole, regardless of whether or not it's a square or not. I know that's not the answer. Um, Maybe the answer is like uh, proposing to graduates, look, you're not done and you have a lot more learning to do, you know, Um, which I actually tell all graduates, which is simultaneously uh, terrifying and discouraging and um, and liberating to some level because it says, look, you don't feel confident, you shouldn't feel confident because, you know, there's no way to know everything at your stage. Anyway, so other kinds of factors that I think play into a a faculty member who would say things like psychodynamic therapy is dead, and which I've heard that too. I've heard heard students that come to me and said, so, and and it's always psychodynamic. So (laughs) before I go into the factors... Here's what I hear. I hear a lot of people 
talking shit about psychodynamic therapy, which I have to say, I don't understand that. Um, they either don't understand it or, or they're stupid or they're biased or something. Um, the other, the other theory I actually hear people talking shit about is CBT. There's a fair amount of people who say, ah, CBT, it's just for robots or it's, it's not real therapy and that kind of thing. And same thing. You, you can't talk shit about cognitive therapy and you cannot talk shit about behavioral therapy. They're both effective. So you can say you don't like it, but you can't say that it's, it's not real therapy or something. You know, you could say it's not your style or whatever, which I have to say is a little ridiculous because I, I can't imagine any therapist who does not use cognitive techniques. You might not think you're using cognitive techniques, but I guarantee you you're using cognitive techniques and Behaviorism is just a scientific fact. I mean, uh, all you got to do is know how to train your your puppy and know that behaviorism works. You know, and and we we exist as animals in a in a behavioral training atmosphere. You know, the fact that I know how to speak English is because through behaviorism I was rewarded and and had negative consequences to the way I talked. You know, when I talked the way that Seattleites talked and the accent, I got a good response. And when I didn't, I got a bad response. And so, you know, behaviorism is, is a reality. And so is cognitivism and blah, blah, blah. Anyway. So those are the two theories I hear people talking shit about. I don't hear a lot of people talking shit about humanistic theory, honestly, uh, not that often. Um, I guess I hear people talking shit about strategic or uh, Erickson or um, anyway. Or I guess I hear people talking shit about social focus. But anyway, the main ones I hear people talking shit about is psychodynamic and CBT, which is interesting. You know, it's like maybe these two have a traditional beef with each other or they're, they're so different that people feel like they have to be on one side of the fence or, or another. But uh, uh, anyway, other factors are the culture of the training program. You know, some some training programs have a culture that is – that, you know, it's like if you want to be in our program as a faculty or a student, you're going to adopt these, this set of beliefs. And among that, those set, that happens in any training program. And sometimes what that means is it involves a particular theory. Also, people, there's dogma out there and people adopt certain dogma. Like in the brief therapy world, in the solution focus world, there's, there's some who promote dogma that anyone who involves themselves in long-term therapy is just basically just taking the client's money for no reason, you know? And uh, there's certain dogmatic statements that people will say that is it, it, the spirit behind the statement is fine, but the statement is ridiculous. And so, so there's certain dogmatic statements that people say about psychodynamic therapy. That's just not true. Also, there's a, there's a worry in our field that will be associated with quacks. And there are certain people in our past who are associated with quacks, you know, and psychodynamic therapy, you know, people who say, oh, isn't Freud, isn't he all about the penis and stuff? And no one wants to be associated with that ridiculousness, right? You want to be taken seriously. And so there are some people who will say like, no, you know, Freudian psychodynamic therapy, that's obsolete. You know, that's no one uses that anymore. And don't don't associate me with that kind of stuff. 
So I think that's another uh, worry that people have. Another worry is that a lot of people want to be taken as a hard science, which I have to say is just misguided. I, I don't understand any psychotherapist who wants to be considered a hard science. Why do you want to be considered a hard science? Um, it, it, it's one, it's not a hard, there, there's no way to make psychotherapy into a hard science. There just, it just, there's just no way to do it. Even when you get to the hardest science of all, which is, you know, randomized clinical double blinded trials for depression or anxiety, you're still asking a human being to report on their symptoms. <laughs> you know, it, it's still, there's, you can never be a hard science when you're asking human beings to provide a, on a scale from one to five, how depressed are you? That's, there's just no way to make that a hard science. Hard science, hard sciences are like, how far is the moon from the earth? Or what chemical uh, composition is the, is a rock on the moon? These are hard sciences. And you're never asking someone for their personal opinion about their mood. <laughs> you know, that ask, you don't have to, you don't ask the moon, you know, on a scale from one to 10, how much of your uh, makeup is silicate? You know, uh, how much of your makeup is, is how much oxygen do you have wrapped up in your, in your rocks? You know, you don't, you don't ask, you don't have to ask for someone's opinion. You know, a lot of the science, a lot of the sciences have there, there's a hard number that if investigated well enough, you will know the answer to that question. Psychology and psychotherapy will never be that. And that doesn't mean that we're not a legitimate profession. It just means we're not a hard science. And uh, stop trying to make it into hard science. And, and, and your worry about making it into a hard science basically means that you end up doing things to us like hating psychodynamic therapy as, as some sort of scapegoat that somehow demonstrates that you're a hard science. I mean, I know so many people like this, I swear to God. They'll, they'll just be like, uh, you know, hey, we're evidence-based. I'm cognitive behavioral therapist. I'm an evidence-based therapist. This is a hard science, you know. It is scientifically proven and blah, blah, blah. And it's just like, you don't understand, you know, people who say that don't under. Now, I'm not saying that there isn't, quote, unquote, evidence of effectiveness. But what I am saying is like, you all at the end of that sentence and that, you know, whenever you talk about this, the so-called evidence of something at the end of that sentence, you have to say, but you know, psychotherapy is a very squishy thing. <laughs> and, and the reasons why people come to therapy, you know, it's kind of hard to measure you know, it's, it's hard to measure effectiveness because it's hard to measure. It's hard to measure people and their opinions and symptoms. You know, these are hard things to, to measure. So, uh, anyway, so there's a, there's a lot, particularly lately, there's just a lot of like desire to make us into a hard science and, and CBT is considered more uh, closer to the hard science uh, realm than psychodynamic therapy. And therefore, I think some people will scapegoat psychodynamic therapy as a way of sort of establishing themselves as part of a hard science. Um, also, there's just a general ignorance about theory. Uh, I find that very few clinicians and even instructors really understand theory. Again, not because they're stupid, but because it, it's just, it's so complex. Um, also, as I said e earlier, it's easier to have simplistic notions instead of complicated ones. Also, another thing is, is that I've actually found in some of my students, 
um, is that people have past trauma with particular theories. Like some, some people have been to a cognitive behavioral therapist and been traumatized by that therapist or their, or their mother was a psychodynamic therapist who abused them. And, and so, I mean, I've had students come to me and say that, you know, I'll, I'll lecture on psychodynamic theory and they'll come to me and they'll be like, you know what? You completely changed my mind about psychodynamic theory. And I'll be like, oh, really? You know, tell me more. And they'll be like, well, when I, when I was a kid, I went and saw a, a psychoanalyst and it was, it was a terrible experience for me. And so I always considered psychodynamic therapy to be this terrible thing. But really, it was just that one clinician. And so I, I think that's another reason. Also, echo chamber effects. You know, if you're around other like-minded people, you end up just kind of in-group, out-grouping. Also, really, and this is, you know, my bias maybe shining through, is that in order to understand more complex theories like existential or uh, the general humanistic thing or satire or uh, even systemic theory. It's pretty, it's systemic theory is one of the hardest things to understand. Honestly, I take it from me who uh, continually is trying to, I, I spend a good amount of my time working with extremely intelligent students and extremely dedicated students trying to get them to understand systemic theory. And, and it, and, and I'm never quite confident that they get it. In fact, it's easier for me to teach them psychodynamic therapy than it is for me to teach them systems theory anyway, because um, it's such a different way of thinking. Anyway, my point is, is that, you know, there's a bell curve of intelligence <laughs> and there's a bell curve of, of creative juices that flow in, in people's veins. Um, try that on for a soft science right there. And, you know, so some people are just not going to have the brain power to to understand the more complex theories or the creativity required to be open to metaphor that some of the more complex theories involve and i don't know if this is real or not but but when as i brainstorm different reasons why people would poo poo particular theories over others i i wonder if iq and sort of creative iq plays a role I don't know. It sounds insulting, but I, uh, it might be, but I hope it isn't. Um, another thing that I've seen is that specific to anti-psychodynamic theory people is that I have found, cause I have, I have close colleagues who hate psychodynamic theory. <laughs> and, and so I, I've, I was starting to think it's like, okay, what is it about those people? And I think for, for some people, they actually, because of their own traumas growing up, and because of their own personality issues themselves, they actually, this is just me analyzing my colleagues, so take it with a massive grain of salt. I, I am wondering if they are terrified of just the idea of personality. Because if, you, if, if the idea of, and the construct of personality is a, is a thing, then that leads to to other kinds of thoughts that are very threatening to their stability in their own personality. I don't know how to go into that. I don't know how to explain that better, but uh, that's my observation <laughs> is that some people, the very notion of a self, the very notion of a personality, the very notion of a object relation 
and internalizing that. The very notion of those things, I think, scare some clinicians because of the way they're mistreated as children. And they would much rather stick to something more concrete like cognitive therapy. Um, so, you know, I don't know. Uh, all right. So in conclusion, again, the relationship is the most important thing. And that has nothing to do with theory. Every, every theory will admit that the relationship is important, not only because it just makes sense, but also that the empirical science has demonstrated it over and over and over again. The, uh, the m- much more important than theory. So in other words, it, if you're a cognitive therapist, if you're a psychodynamic therapist, it doesn't matter as much as, so, well, no, a better way of putting it is a client comes into your office and it, it matters less whether you choose cognitive therapy over psychodynamic therapy than it is that you concentrate on the relationship. If you concentrate on building a strong relationship that involves positive regard, empathy, a good working alliance, good self-disclosure, managing ruptures well, managing your counter-transference well, if you do all those things, you listen well, you, you gather feedback from, from the client regarding the, the uh, therapy you're providing. You do all those things really well, then feel free to choose whatever theory you want, honestly, because the most important thing is the relationship. Now, um, having said that, theory does play a role, a much smaller role than the relationship. And when you choose a theory, you need to tailor the approach to the client and the problem, not the other way around. All right, that does it for that episode of Psychology in Seattle. I hope that answers your question. Patron Simon, let me know what you think. Also, everyone else, let me know what you think. (laughs) Email me at contact at psychologyinseattle.com. Also, we have a live event coming up January 27, 2018, Antioch University, Seattle. It's a Saturday, 3 o'clock. It'll be our very first live event ever after almost 10 years of doing this podcast. And we're really excited about it. People are traveling all over. Uh, go to the Facebook page and the Facebook fan group to get more information and talk about it. Um, really looking forward to it. Afterwards, we're going to go to a, a bar nearby and get some food and some drinks and play some pinball and that kind of stuff. So you could do one or both or you know either one. Um, also, uh, join the Facebook fan group. And join the Facebook and like the Facebook page. So you like our Facebook page uh, and then you join the Facebook fan group. Um, also, uh, spread the word, you know, post post on the Internet our different episodes, you know, on your Facebook page or Twitter or whatever. Um, that's always cool to have people learn about us through that way. Also, buy my book, Multi-Role Clinical Supervision. Uh, I can't tell you I'm not checking every five minutes to see how many are selling on Amazon. (laughs) All right. Uh, Well, that does it for that episode of Psychology in Seattle. Thanks for joining me. Please take care of yourself because you deserve it. (laughs) 